This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Sidious Altius Fortius. If you're a sports fan or paid attention during Latin class, you might recognize this is the motto of the modern Olympic Games, which were established in 1896 by French historian and founder of the International Olympic Committee, Pierre de Coubertin. The Games are the apex of international sport. They're meant to celebrate the resilience of the human spirit by showcasing elite athletes as they push themselves to the limit physically and mentally. Every four years, the opportunity arrives for those select few to reach the ultimate goal in their sporting careers. Here he goes, streaking away already. A new world record for Usain Bolt. They say lightning doesn't strike twice. People like Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt, Romanian gymnast Nadia Comaneci, US swimmer Michael Phelps, or British rower Sir Stephen Redgrave. Their speed, strength, and agility are on a completely different level, and from the very first Olympic Games in ancient Greece, this is where legends are made. Where some might find glory, on the flip side, others can experience the agony of defeat. In certain events, athletes risk serious injury or even death in pursuit of a gold medal. More often than not, they fall short of their aspirations. But the spirit and drive of healthy competition is always there. Well, almost always. There exists another type of athlete who, by design, can find themselves making history for their epic performances, but for all the wrong reasons. Scandals and controversies are no strangers to the Olympic Games and have been traced back to the earliest tournaments. In fact, bending and even flat-out breaking the rules was not all that uncommon. One of the first people to deserve a medal for unsportsmanship behavior was none other than Roman Emperor Nero. The first Summer Games began way back in 776 BC. Of course, this was long before the days of drug testing, photo finishes, glitzy opening ceremonies, and team uniforms that sometimes pushed the boundaries of fashion. The original games were held at the ancient site of Olympia, where athletes competed in events including boxing, chariot racing, and wrestling. Back then, there was no need for flashy or aerodynamic uniforms, since athletes competed naked. That tradition was eventually changed, perhaps with the inclusion of the Winter Games? While this avoided all sorts of health concerns, the introduction of clothing, unfortunately, did not cover up all the poor behavior exhibited by participants. Almost 800 years later, when the Summer Games arrived in the year 67 AD, Greece had been conquered by Rome, which was under the rule of Nero. The Roman Emperor was a self-indulgent, spontaneous kind of guy who made up the rules as he went along. When he took over management of the Olympic Games, Nero decided the event program should be expanded. His competition would now include artistic pursuits, such as singing, acting, poetry, and instrumental performances. It was, of course, 
just a coincidence that Nero considered himself to be exceptionally talented in all of these artistic areas. I mean, sporting events. Apparently, if you can't beat the game, you can always change the game. If you're the one in charge, that is. The other competitors were about to discover that, when it came to standing on the top step of the podium that year, Nero would stop at nothing. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. Despite having a strong appreciation for Greek culture, Nero had no concerns about fiddling with the revered and sacred history of the Olympics. One of the first things he did was to change the calendar to suit his own personal schedule. Like a rock star with outrageous demands, Nero wanted to compete during an upcoming tour of Greece. The trip left him with little time to get ready for the 65 AD games, so he simply postponed them for two years. No one dared question the change. At the time, the rulebook specified that in order to compete in the games, you had to be a Greek-born male. No problem. As far as Nero was concerned, his love for everything Greek practically made him a child of Olympia. Just to be safe, though, he decided to bribe every judge and every official needed to ensure his spot in the competition. It didn't stop there. When it came time for the chariot race, Nero decided to increase his chances of winning by using ten horses instead of the traditional four. Despite the additional literal horsepower, or maybe because of it, Nero was thrown from the chariot during the race. Unprepared but always confident, as the horses powered around one precarious turn, he lost control. The crash left him so badly injured that he was on the brink of death. But Nero recovered, and unfortunately for the other competitors, despite not crossing the finish line, he was crowned the winner. In fact, incredibly, he managed to win every event he took part in that year. An Olympic record that, to this day, has not been broken. Those unlucky enough to be officiating over Nero understandably felt they had no choice but to allow the emperor to continue on his campaign of corrupting the spirit of the Olympic Games. But the Greek people would have the last laugh. Following Nero's death the next year, all the bribes the emperor paid judges and officials during the games had to be repaid. Not only that, but the entire games that year were declared void, and Nero's name was removed from the list of Olympic champions. Fast forward almost a thousand years to the 1936 Summer Olympics in Berlin. Berlin's great day dawns with the arrival of the Olympic flame at the end of its 2,000-mile journey from Greece. The Games were held under the dark shadow of rising Nazism in Germany. Nationalism in the country was at an all-time high, and the German team was expected to do well. Among their women's track and field team was high jumper Dora Ratchin. The 17-year-old had grown up near the city of Bremen and was the youngest of four children. Dora loved sports from a young age and, as a teen, began competing in events with the local athletics club. Persistence and tenacity resulted in a coveted spot representing Germany at the 1936 Olympics. Finishing a respectable fourth, Dora Ratchin was disappointed, but not deterred, and would reappear a couple of years later at the European Athletics Championships in 1938. This time, 
the German high jumper was victorious, not only winning the gold medal, but setting a new world record at the same time. Immediately following the championships, Dora was on a train returning home when police hauled the medalist off to be questioned. The reason was shocking. The train conductor had reason to believe that Dora, who was dressed in women's clothing, was actually a man. Of course, these days, freedom to express one's gender identity by wearing whatever you want in public is becoming more prevalent. But in pre-World War II Nazi Germany? Compared to today, that may as well have been an entirely different universe. Following police instructions, the world record holder produced ID, showing that, yes, their name was in fact Dora. Apparently, authorities were not convinced. A doctor was called to perform a physical examination, concluding that Ratchin was biologically a man, but determined their genitalia was ambiguous. Today, Dora Ratchin would likely have been identified at birth as an intersex person. The high jumper was arrested on criminal charges of fraud and stripped of the European women's high jump record and gold medal. The previous women's high jump world record was reinstated. After being sent for more humiliating rounds of physical examinations, in 1939, the German courts finally determined that Ratchin had not committed any crime. The prosecutor believed there had been no intent to publicly present as a woman for the purposes of financial gain. Despite a natural talent for the sport, Ratchin had to make the heartbreaking promise to never compete again. The tragic story had started from the time Dora Ratchin was born. According to reports, medical staff initially thought Ratchin had been born a male, but soon after decided the baby was a girl. When Dora was nine months old and sick with pneumonia, a doctor was called to examine her. The doctor advised her parents to continue raising their youngest child as a girl, which they did. However, at 10 years old, Dora started identifying as a boy. As a teen, Ratchin remained incredibly private, especially in the change rooms at athletic events, so no one ever noticed anything out of the ordinary. Teammates throughout the years did think it was a bit unusual that someone could be that self-conscious about being naked in front of them, even while changing. The fallout from the court proceedings continued. The status of sex at birth was formally changed from female to male on all official records. Ratchin's father also requested that his youngest child's name be changed from Dora to Heinrich, trying to help as best he could. The request was granted. Heinrich Ratchin, who also became known as Heinz, was provided new identification documents and membership to the male-dominated German labor front. Ratchin worked briefly as a waiter near his hometown and, understandably, avoided the media spotlight as much as possible. He wanted to get on with his life in private and ignored requests for interviews. At one point, the former Olympian claimed that Nazis forced him to compete as a woman for the sake of national success on the international sporting stage. However, there was never much evidence to support this. The one-time world record holder, albeit only briefly, never competed again, and eventually faded into obscurity. Heinrich Ratchin died in 2008 at the age of 89. 
Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. It's generally assumed that most athletes who make it all the way to the Olympics give everything they have to get there. Their determination is often inspiring as they push through adversity in their quest to be the best. At the same time, don't underestimate those who are able to qualify for the games by doing the absolute minimum. Sometimes just showing up and not falling is all it takes, which brings us to the story of Elizabeth Sweeney. Born in Oakland, California in 1984, Elizabeth decided at an early age that she was destined to be an Olympian, and nothing was going to stop her. During high school, her sport of choice was rowing, which she would continue into college. At the University of California, she became the coxswain of the men's rowing team. After spending years on the water, it would be winter sports that soon began to attract more and more of her attention. She went on to earn a master's degree from Harvard University and spent the next few years learning to ski, eventually becoming an instructor. For a brief period, Elizabeth also explored bobsledding, thinking she would make a good pilot, but her slight frame meant that option was over before it began. She flirted with the idea of joining the skeleton event before finally settling on freestyle skiing, specifically the challenging halfpipe. Hello and welcome to the Rosa Couture Extreme Park for the Ski Halfpipe Finals. This is where the medals will be decided. This halfpipe run is going to be very entertaining, there's no doubt about it. The risk of injury in the halfpipe event is significant. Skiers race from side to side of the ramp as they ski downhill. As they gain speed, competitors use the 22-foot walls on both sides to launch high into the air. Skiers can fly over 25 feet above the halfpipe, which is dangerous enough, but they do it while performing incredible acrobatic moves. The skyhook, the frontside 540, now into the double main twist, the tomahawk, frontside double court 1260. Are we going to see the back-to-back -back 1440s? Yes, we are. Competitors receive a score from judges based on several factors, including style and complexity. But if you crash, it's a score of zero, regardless of how well the previous tricks were executed. At the time, competition within the sport was minimal, as the event was fairly new. In terms of worldwide popularity as a winter sport, most people didn't even know the event existed. It's probably a good idea at this point to explain briefly how the Olympic quota system works. It's basically designed to facilitate equitable representation. It's how we end up with a fairly even spread of competitors from different countries. Larger countries with a ton of talented qualifying athletes, like the US, have a cap on how many entrants they can send for any one event. Elizabeth Sweeney knew the United States, for example, could only send four women to compete in the halfpipe. She was also aware that in order to qualify for that team, 
she would need to be a lot better. The good news was, there were lots of other countries headed to the Olympics. With no chance of making the U.S. team, Elizabeth decided to compete for another country, Venezuela. Thankfully, the South American country is where her mother was born, which, according to committee regulations, meant the freestyle skier could represent their flag. The tactic virtually guaranteed Elizabeth a spot on the Venezuelan team, but it didn't go exactly to plan. Unfortunately, she failed to qualify for the 2014 Games in Sochi. But that was just another obstacle to overcome along the road to her Olympic dream. So, Elizabeth regrouped and took another look at her strategy. It was just a simple matter of rethinking the logistics to increase her chances. So, in 2015, she joined the Hungarian team. Fortunately, her grandparents were born in the small European country, so why not compete for them? With no apparent commitment to national pride, Elizabeth Sweeney may have found a new team, but she would still need to qualify for the next Winter Olympics. To qualify for the 2018 Games in Pyeongchang, half-pipe skiers had to meet two specific requirements. First, they had to finish in the top 30 at either a Freestyle World Cup event or at the World Skiing Championships. Second, they had to have earned at least 50 points from competing in international events. So, in the lead-up to the 2018 Olympics, Elizabeth stepped up her training. She traveled the world to compete in as many qualifiers as she could where there were less than 30 participants. This was, of course, the key to her strategy, and it was concerningly simple. All she had to do was finish in the top 30, but because the event was so new, there were typically less than that competing. On 13 occasions alone, she managed this by just showing up, which gave her the points she needed. The numbers may have been far from those of an elite athlete, but they were a score nonetheless. As Elizabeth became a regular fixture at qualifiers, her lackluster performances began to pay off. She was slowly collecting the 50 points needed to qualify for the 2018 Olympics. As the Games approached, she was ranked 34th in the world, not enough to qualify. However, her luck was about to change. As the weeks continued, other competitors started dropping out because of injuries, and, by default, she secured a spot on the Olympic team. With a little luck and by relying heavily on the quota system, 33-year-old Elizabeth Sweeney had accomplished her goal. For most athletes, the opportunity to perform at their absolute best against equally talented and passionate competitors is what the Olympic Games is all about. That incredibly inspiring sentiment, unfortunately, does not apply to everyone. The moment Elizabeth had been dreaming about since she was a little girl had finally arrived, and it was her time to shine. Elizabeth Sweeney from Hungary, out of Oakland, California now, 34th in the World Cup. What can she deliver on here in Pyeongchang? To say her performance while skiing down the halfpipe was underwhelming, well, that would be a gross understatement. 
with her signature move of not falling about the extent of her bag of tricks, it was encouraging that she did in fact finish the run without crashing. Elizabeth did perform an alley-oop, which is a 180-degree turn, but it was executed with the grace of a first-time skier. The enthusiasm expressed by the announcers said it all. Liz Sweeney dropping in, trying to get into this right wall for a nice, just getting up to the top of the wall, going for these grabs, the safety grab you'll see there, and then opting for another, just cruising up to the top of the wall, showing the judges she can make it down this half pipe clean. Going for the alley-oop spin down at the bottom, onto the left, and then a nice cruise 360 to switch, trying to show that she has a little style down at the bottom. There were no spectacular tricks, spins, twists, or any mid-air acrobatics that one would expect to see in this event. Other competitors, officials, and spectators were left confused by a performance that many felt was questionable at best. It was as if everyone had just witnessed some kind of comedy skit. It would have actually been funny had it not been such a wasted opportunity. The highest score Elizabeth received from judges out of two runs was a disappointing 31.4, which placed her dead last. Despite having two remarkably unexceptional runs down the halfpipe, her mediocre performance did not go unnoticed. Some were shocked that Elizabeth didn't even seem to try. Shock quickly turned to frustration that she had taken a spot on the Olympic team from other athletes who would have easily outperformed her at the Games. While critics continued to voice their opinion, other competitors, including some prominent medalists, came to her defense. Let's first start with the people who have said that really you're an inspiration. What do you have to say about that? Right. So that's so um, touching and it's been amazing to have received all these encouraging words and notes of support from people over the last few days. So there are those criticisms. People say that you played the system. What do you have to say to that? Right. That's a good question. And what I have to say in response is that I really appreciate everyone's comments, whether they're positive or coming from a more critical tone. Um, and I definitely consider those. Um, that is halfpipe skier Elizabeth Sweeney. She competed for Hungary at the Winter Olympic Games, and she joined us from Pyeongchang. And in the wake of the competition, Olympic officials say the qualifying rules will most likely change to stop this from happening again. The incident was deemed a scandal, and Elizabeth Sweeney's unethical manipulation of the rules became the focus of an investigation. The scheme was a red flag to officials, who had to admit there were shortcomings to the organization's quota system. Yet, with the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing just around the corner, there's no sign of any changes to the qualification requirements for the halfpipe event. If it stays that way, we might just start seeing a few more bunny slopers on Olympic freestyle courses. That could be fun.
Since 1960, the Paralympic Games has been a symbol of inclusivity for athletes with physical or intellectual disabilities. The Charter of the International Olympic Committee guarantees access to the Games to all athletes without discrimination. The mandate is rooted in the belief that participation in the Games is a fundamental human right. Typically, every city that wins the bid to host the Olympics also takes on the responsibility and privilege of hosting the Paralympic events. The competitions are organized into separate categories depending on the nature of the athlete's disability. When it comes to intellectual disabilities, the International Paralympic Committee has defined eligibility as being diagnosed before the age of 18. But sadly, not everyone follows the rules. In 2000, Spain was overjoyed with the results of their men's basketball team at the Sydney Paralympics. It was the intellectual disability category, and the team defeated Russia in the final to clinch the gold medal. It was Spain's most successful Paralympics ever, with 37 gold medals. The medal count put them in third place at the Games, which most certainly was a reason to celebrate. But the excitement would prove to be short-lived. A couple of months after the team's triumphant return home, Spanish media released an explosive interview with basketball Paralympian and undercover journalist Carlos Ribigorda. During the interview, Carlos revealed that two years earlier, he had infiltrated the men's Paralympic basketball team in order to expose a dark secret. There had apparently been systemic cheating going on during the selection process. He claimed the Spanish Paralympic Committee had not performed physical or psychological evaluations on any members of the basketball team to confirm their eligibility. The undercover journalist alleged that, in fact, only two of the team members met the criteria for competing in that disability category. He accused officials of being more focused on the final medal count and securing lucrative sponsorship dollars. If that meant breaking the rules to do it, oh well. The Spanish committee's vice president, Fernando Martin Vincenti, publicly rejected the claims. The sensational allegations forced the International Paralympic Committee to demand an investigation be conducted into the matter immediately. That's all it took for the vice president of the committee to change his tune. Before submitting his resignation, he released a statement accepting full responsibility for the required testing not being undertaken. He also apologized for what had blown into a national embarrassment. Trying to minimize the reputational fallout, before stepping down, Fernando Martin Vincenti suggested that Spain wasn't the only country breaking the eligibility rules. After it was confirmed that 10 of the 12 Spanish basketball players did not have any form of intellectual disability, Spain was disqualified and stripped of their gold medal. Fearing the worst, the International Paralympic Committee pursued an investigation of the claims of widespread corruption. It revealed there was truth behind the allegations. As a result, the committee implemented a suspension on all intellectual disability events from subsequent Paralympic Games. Thankfully, in 2009, the ban was lifted just in time for the London 2012 Paralympics.
The list of less-than-legendary Olympians goes on and includes some real winners. During the 1904 Games in St. Louis, Missouri, for example, U.S. marathon runner Fred Lors decided driving was faster than running. Not even halfway through the race, Lors hopped into a passing car, which took him along the next 11 miles of the course. It wasn't until the car broke down that he started running again, crossing the finish line in first place. When the stunt was quickly discovered, the Olympic marathon runner claimed that he had meant it as a joke. Fred Lors was disqualified. Incredibly, that wasn't the only scandal during the race. When the medal was taken from Lors, it was given to his teammate, Thomas Hicks, who came in second. Problem was, after crossing the finish line, Hicks collapsed. Not because of exhaustion, but because he had been poisoned. In what would be considered doping by today's standards, Thomas Hicks had ingested strychnine, washing it down with liquor. Unlike the drugs used in modern doping scandals, back then, the highly toxic ingredient found in rat poison was thought to act much like a stimulant. Hicks swallowed two doses of strychnine during the race to help him pick up the pace, and while it may have helped him cross the finish line, it nearly killed him. The last time strychnine showed up at the Games was in 2016. A Kyrgyzstan weightlifter was promptly stripped of his bronze medal. Let's see what Olympic-sized scandal makes history next. production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hope of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening and for your amazing reviews and ratings. I'll be back next week with another episode.
the Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.